Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's not just government, it's local community groups. It's individuals raising money and trying to assist that shows the spirit of Australia. What matters most? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Never one to shy away from a challenge, today's guest literally had a baptism of fire in her latest role. It's my great pleasure today to have the SES Commissioner for New South Wales, Carleen York, joining us here at Short Black. Welcome, Carleen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, I was just thrilled to find out that the person running SES New South Wales was a woman, and I was equally perplexed and worried for you because you took the job literally just before the horrendous bushfires of 2019 struck. At the time, did you sort of take a big gulp and think, oh, my goodness, talk about timing? Uh, yeah, the timing was incredible. First of all, very proud to be a female in charge of the New South Wales State Emergency Service. So first female to be in charge of any emergency service or policing agency in New South Wales. So it's a pretty big thing for me. But yeah, the fires had just started in uh, October, November of 2019. So went straight into assisting the main agency of Rural Fire Service through those fires into February. Then uh, the floods and storms came, which I think was a blessing, but then that put us on the front foot as being the primary response agency for flood storms and tsunamis. So that was February. And then March, COVID hit. So we had to change all our operations. So it's been a very hectic and unusual 15, 16 months. Well, pardon the pun, but it's been a baptism of fire. <laughs> when you look back, you know, what are your recollections when you think back to that time? I know in the newsroom, we often say September 11 was, you know, a game changer in the history of news and in our living memory. And then the bushfires came, which were the worst in Australians' living memory, followed by COVID, not to mention drought and floods elsewhere around the country. Yeah, it's been a very unusual time for particularly our state and taking over this position. For me, I had a, a good background in emergency services, having had over 35 years with the New South Wales Police, but certainly responding and assisting the RFS, sending our volunteers and getting used to a volunteer agency was quite different to what it is with a paid employees. But also some of our volunteers suffering during that time because we had quite a few volunteers lost their homes, lost their property or businesses, uh, mainly down on the south coast, but some on the north coast. So putting in that welfare and support and making sure that they were, the rest of the volunteers are able to do their job, it's, it's been quite a challenge, but exciting to take over this role. But um, I don't think I've had an ordinary business as usual day during that period. Since you started, what would you say has been the biggest challenge? I mean, bushfires are a given. The scale of those bushfires were just phenomenal. But you moved out of New South Wales policing into this emergency services area. And as you say, you're commanding a force of volunteers. Was that the most challenging thing or just getting your head around the scale of the job at hand? 
I think it was a little bit of both because I was trying to do both at the same time. So when you go into a new organisation, you know, just down to your emails are different, the contact lists, the environment I'd come from where I knew everyone, I knew who to contact and trying to work out who was in my leadership team, who were the decision makers around my organisation, how to work systems whilst being, you know, frontline, responding to the community's needs. And managing a a group of highly motivated volunteers is, as I say, quite different to having paid employees because they give up their time willingly and for nothing to come and serve the community. So a rewarding environment, but um, particularly during the bushfires, we spent, I think, 90,000 volunteer hours helping the RFS and the community. Then when going into floods, people had used up their annual leave from their employer or had taken time out of their business. And so actually getting the resources then kick-started to do our response was again another challenge into that February period of storms. But then going into lockdown, obviously with isolation and not being able to have training nights. And I had started to travel around the state meeting with some of the units. And all of a sudden I was confined to our Wollongong headquarters. So Luckily, we uh, kicked in teams. I could visit locations around the state without leaving the office, talk to them during their training nights. But it's not the same as getting out. The volunteers really appreciate the commissioner and the executive getting out. So we've opened that up again. So that's been really good. I was in Wingham on the weekend. I've had Bathurst, Blaney and Dubbo a couple of weeks ago. That's a really rewarding thing to be able to get out. But um, yeah, different, different with volunteers. I gave a couple of awards out on Saturday for a husband and wife. The husband, regretfully, is now deceased, but she accepted the award on his behalf of 50 years of volunteering. I mean, that's just amazing when you think of what your career is in paid employment. And here these people are doing it on top of all their other business. What do you think is the most challenging aspect of keeping volunteers and that army engaged and energised? What's the biggest challenge for you as a leader? I suppose being able to engage and communicate with them. So I have obligations, obviously leading a government agency with processes, policies, legislative requirements, etc. The volunteers, they just want to come and whether it's pick up a chainsaw, hop on a flood boat, work some uh, information and technology for us or logistics. It's being able to allow them to do what they want to volunteer for the community and assist the community whilst making sure that my small staff of 320 paid staff can do all those governance and those requirements in the background to allow them to get out and work with the community. The other big challenge, obviously, is working with our emergency services stakeholders, having joint training, but also we very much rely on councils to provide some facilities and to assist us in helping their community. So keeping up those relationships is really important as well. Look, I'm a really visual person and when it comes to the bushfires, there are images seared onto my brain of that traumatic experience for everyone involved. Is it the same for you? Oh, it is. I I don't think anyone could not be moved by the images we saw during those bushfires last year. And to see the the pain on people's faces, even the, the children that have no home and no toys, particularly around that Christmas period, you know, it is devastating and it does affect you personally. But you need to sort of remember that we have a job to do, whether it's in our floods and storms. We need to prepare the community. We need to be able to educate the community about reducing their risk. And, you know, like policing, again, we see some very traumatic events right up close. It's just knowing that we're there to help the community and to get them through it and to make sure we are reflective of that community. We've got members there that come from that community, want to help that community, and we want to make sure that we can. And and not only that, we send volunteers all across the state. We've recently sent them into Queensland for some of their floods. So it's a real joint effort across Australia and New Zealand. 
Do you have a lasting image that haunts you from the bushfires at all? Oh, I think my lasting image is uh, probably the, the deaths of the rural fire service volunteers and, and the community members that died, but particularly the volunteers, because that touches home, I suppose, when I'm running a volunteer agency that they're putting their life at risk and, and seeing the children of the um, RFS volunteers who lost their lives, that's quite traumatic. I'll always remember those. And and the other one was the aircraft crash where the volunteers or the assistants from America where they, the three died in the in the airplane crashes. Just that loss of life and those photos and images that are portrayed in the in the media and that we see really leaves a lasting image to, to show how, I suppose, dramatic these weather events are in Australia and how we have to really be ready for it because it's not a matter of if, it's when they happen. I guess you had no better training with 35 plus years in the police force, but it's still a leap of faith and you were thrown at the deep end and had to manage pretty quickly your staff, your resources. On a personal level, those challenges were profound. How have you dealt with them personally? Luckily, uh, I'm a pretty optimistic person at the best of times. Obviously, I had a lot of that training. And uh, towards the end of my career in the police, I was in charge of HR and was very active and very motivated in putting in health and wellbeing programs for our police and knowing how important it is to be resilient, to understand the effects of tragedy on your own personal strength and to be able to put in some processes to work through that. Obviously, I have a very supportive husband, got two children and now a beautiful five-year-old grandson. So I I seek a lot of enjoyment and and a break away from the stresses of the job through the family. We have a lovely boat, so we go on the boat on the harbour and just get away when you can. I mean, the phone is always in my pocket or in my handbag. You're never away for, for too long, but it is knowing when you're not feeling very well and being able to take time out or to just understand the feelings that you're going through. So Some of those programs I'm starting also to try and get into the New South Wales SES to look after our members as well so that they know that when they're feeling down, it's it's not unusual. It's the chemicals that are reacting, the adrenaline, et cetera, that affects your mind that you have little control over. So it's understanding the causes of those feelings and being able to deal with it and making sure I create an environment where they can put their hand up for help. And I think that's one of the things we really tried to get through in the police is you're not weak by asking for help. And the earlier you do it, the more likely you are to maintain your strength and be healthy and able to do your job. Do you think being born and raised in Wagga Wagga gave you a special insight into preparation for the job and what the word community means? Yes, I'm really appreciative of having that country background. Not that, you know, people don't grow up strong in the metropolitan area, but certainly with families and friends, relatives that have had farms that that go through the ups and downs based on climate and based on, you know, whether you have a mouse plague that's happening at the moment out west or whether the rain falls, I think makes you appreciate the, the good things in life. And there's always a good day coming up. It might not be this year, it could be in following years very close, small family and appreciative that was obviously um, proud of the fact that, you know, I joined the police force and that was a a big thing for my family. There hadn't been a lot of people going to university or getting into those professions. So that close-knit rural community and Wagga was a lot smaller in those days when I grew up there was a really good background to, again, maintain my optimism, I suppose, about the future. What's the reception been like to you in the job? I mean, you were thrown in the deep end. No one had a chance to sort of process, oh, hang on a minute, here's the woman running the biggest emergency services network in the country. Were you well received? 
Uh, I was well received internally within SES. I've had nothing but support from both the paid staff and our volunteer members. You know, it's never 100% supportive. You know, any organisation has those doubters. One thing I've learned about volunteers is they're never afraid to speak up and give their mind, whereas a constable talking to an assistant commissioner might not really tell them what they think, but volunteers will always tell me what they think. What sort of things have they said to you? Oh, well, you know, I've got a lot of emails about um, we need this equipment or we're not getting enough training, you know, things that they think will make their life better in the SES, which is important, you know, about it was better in the old days before (laughs) sort of we joined the government agencies now we've got restrictions, things like that come through. And it's a matter of me. I always answer my emails personally. I try and inform them of reasons of change or decisions or whatever. And quite often I've had, you know, comments back of, well, we've never been told that before. We now understand we'll work within that. So I get a lot of nice emails now about some of the changes we've brought in. So that's good. But I have nothing but support, really, overwhelming support. And particularly from my fellow commissioners in other police and emergency services, very helpful. You know, you always need to know some backstories about how we've come to be where we are. And they've been, you know, a great group to be able to work with and build some relationships as well. One of the good things at the moment is um, not that everyone's into strategic planning, but our strategic plan has expired this year. We've done a a new one. We've consulted with our volunteers, councils, stakeholders, lots of people. And the feedback I'm getting is this is really good. This is where we should be going. Getting back to really educating and preparing the community as well as that important response. So I've had a lot of support, a lot of support from the Secretary of the Communities and Justice Cluster Government, you know. It's been great to have the support, but really it's down to me getting into this chair, doing what I need to do and working with the agency to drive us forward. No one takes a job at a level like yours without doing plenty of homework and taking it on with a view to the changes you knew needed to be made. Do you feel you've been allowed to make them? Uh, Yeah, I have been allowed to make them. Regretfully, you'd never get it done as quickly as you want. And COVID really impacted on some of those things. So for example, in a month's time, I've got a couple of days with my leadership team to do some business planning, some projections to where we want to go into the future, which I've been unable to do. You can only do so much over Teams and Zoom, and you don't get those personal relationships. So that's delayed some of the things. Some of the changes, well, has been, and the work was done before I started, but government have provided a brand new fleet of vehicles over the next few years and ongoing, whereas we were supplied those by the councils, which was quite costly for the councils, depending on their financial status. So getting those vehicles out, doing a lot in relation to improving communications and the radio network uh, with other government agencies across the state to make sure we can contact people to make sure they're safe. They're, They're big projects that we've been having. Some of the other things is the units, you know, get donations and they've been quite restricted in how they can spend that money for the betterment of their unit and the community. So just getting in some new rules and processes around that to make it easier for them has been very positively received. You speak of donations. When you look at someone through the bushfires like Celeste Barber, who raised 50 million plus, but the politics has made it difficult for everyone to enjoy that giving that occurred. What would you say to people who feel frustrated at the politics of donating? Yeah, I think that area that those donations were quite complex. But the community, as you say, are just so generous in relation to what they give back to our agency. And 
We use the word a unique sometimes, but to have a government agency with volunteers that relies on councils and donations is quite a, a different organisation to run. It's an unusual bag of tricks, isn't it? It is an unusual bag of tricks and there's everyone has a reason for what they're doing. So it's balancing all of those needs and just making sure we've got those rigid processes in place or clear processes in place to make sure that we're spending the money. So sometimes people donate money with a clause of what they would like it spent on, you know, like Rotary might give us something and say, we would like new signage because you're not visible in the community. And we just make sure that we use the money for which it's donated to us. We work with councils on buildings and properties, and a lot of the councils are very, very supportive of the SES, or most councils are across the whole state. And just trying to blend all those complexities into our agency. And, you know, it's nice to be a bit unique. And it's really nice that we reflect the community's desire to strengthen their own community, which is, even though we're a New South Wales government department, very much work down at that local level. You touched on mental illness before and how it's a significant part of what you have to manage. I mean, these days it affects one in five Australians. And surely in your previous role in HR with the police force, you would have some tremendous insight in how you manage that in terms of a workforce. The one in five, would that be an adequate reflection of what your workforce is struggling with at the moment? Or do you think it was exacerbated as a consequence of the extreme natural events? I think it's probably still around that one in five. I haven't got the research to base that opinion on. But again, and I want to do some delving into it. And again, as you say, I'm new in this agency, but, you know, is it the same for volunteers as it is for employees? You know, they're doing this great community task of volunteering for the SES. Is that they're out from their work stresses? Does it create more stress? You know, they're the answers of some research I'd really like to know. We are really trying to improve the service and the welfare support that we want to give to our volunteers to make sure that they are healthy. And as I said before, it might be one in five, but they're all on different stages of the effect of mental health issues. And if we're really, really um, passionate about, if we can catch it early, if we can step in early, if someone can tell us their husband or wife or partner or son or daughter isn't going well, then we can put in some processes to help them. It's when they hide it, they don't want to come forward, they feel embarrassed or they don't have the resilience to come forward and ask for help. That's when you get into quite difficult areas of trying to get them back. So one of the good things about the SES is just the social network that they make in their communities. Not only do they want to come and do the response work, it's an agency where you, there is no need for a retirement age. There's always a task to do. We have people over 80 still volunteering that might not be picking up a chainsaw or getting in a flood boat, but are doing maintenance work around the sheds or things that they can do within their capacity, but still have that social interaction, still come in, still have that cup of tea on a Wednesday in the training morning and do things, which is you know a really good resource, I think, for the community, as well as we get a lot of benefit out of it by having trained volunteers and also keeping that knowledge that they've had those volunteers of years of service of 35, 40, 45, 50 years, keeping that knowledge and training up the newer volunteers is exceptionally important to us. Age is no barrier when it comes to volunteering, is it? No, there's always something that you can do. And look, I don't even mind if they just turn up and have the social interaction because they've spent so many years with the SES. And I'm you know, amazed by my volunteers every time I go out to those units and speak with them. I spoke with one where he's been a paramedic for 36 years, but he's still volunteering. I don't know how he gets the time. I don't know how he does the shift work. I don't know how he manages his family. But volunteering then for the SES for an extensive amount of time 
is just vitally important for us. We all get pretty consumed by our day in our world and life moves so quickly. The bushfires are over a year ago and yet the communities are still suffering. Can you give me a snapshot of how you see the communities faring at the moment and what do people need to be mindful of? What would you ask people to do when they think about the bushfires and think that story is done? Well, I think the lasting mental health effects will continue on for some period of time. And I'm aware that, you know, some people have just recently come forward to seek assistance, whether that be financial or mental health assistance. So the message both from the Rural Fire Service, Resilience New South Wales and any emergency service agency is put your hand up when you need help, because that's what Australia is about, is to help those in need of help. And I suppose it's a process uh, that some will go through and be better quicker than others. We shouldn't judge how people are affected by it. We should just be there to give them a hand and ensure that they can get help when they want it. And I know it's not just government, it's local community groups, it's individuals raising money and trying to assist that shows the spirit of Australia. One family down the south coast not only lost their house, but the floods went through their business as well. So there's significant effects of these climatic events happening on them. What's the most pressing issue before you at the moment? Oh, that's a, an interesting question. The most pressing issue, well, for me, is to ensure that we continue getting volunteers. As you said, the speed of life is so much quicker, the demands of work, the costs of housing, families where both partners are working, not only trying to make ends meet for them, but perhaps into retirement, trying to assist their children and all that sort of stuff. It has an effect on volunteering. The health of our country towns, you know, I see some of them are decreasing in size, in population, and that, that affects the people coming forward to volunteer. So again, a bit of a unique position. I, I can't transfer people out to those locations to do a job like we could have done in the police. We rely on those local communities. So my most challenging issue is to ensure that the volunteering continues and people put their hand up and come forward to the SES to help the communities in which they live. What's the best way to do that? Just contact your local SES? Yep, we've got a, a website that they can have a look at. All the information about volunteering is there. We also have community engagement activities. So our SES volunteers might spend a Saturday or a Thursday going out, setting up a stall in the local main street, having open days in our SES unit headquarters to invite people to come in to, to discuss with us some of the things that they can do. Obviously, I would like a lot of people that were able to be trained for flood rescue and able to be trained for road crash rescue or chopping down trees, chainsaws, etc. But we have many other logistical jobs, admin jobs, communications officers, public information officers. So there's a job for everyone and it doesn't matter what age. It's really about increasing the number of volunteers and showing them that we are an organisation that shares their values, that wants to help the community and that they want to be part of us. So lots of opportunities for people to come forward and volunteering. If I can have a bit of a sales pitch there. There's lots of things they can do. I'm giving you the platform, Carlene. <laughs> Thanks. I'm Sandra 
and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before the SES, you had a pretty accomplished and illustrious career in New South Wales Police. One thing that was a significant highlight was you led the capture of Australia's most wanted man, Malcolm Naden, in 2012. I remember that capture in rural New South Wales that went on for days. Days. It went for four and a half months. Wow. (laughs) So I had been appointed as a Northern Region Commander. So at that stage, I was running all the police stations from Gosford to Tweed Heads, which is a, you know, a really busy area. A lot of the roads hadn't been finished. It's the busiest highway in all of New South Wales. Busy in the crime area and uh, around two and a half thousand police officers as well. So it was busy. And when I first went up there, they said, there's this fellow, Malcolm Naden. He's, uh, you know, I knew he'd done uh, the murders and sexual assault of his family members at Dubbo and had been on the run for around seven and a half, eight years. And they said, we have a lot of operations now and again where there's been sightings or indications of him being around. And I thought, oh, that's okay. I'll just, you know, run the region and the troops will get out there and search for him. But tragically or disturbingly, I got a call from one of my fellow region commanders saying they were doing a search in the Barrington Tops and Malcolm Naden had shot one of our officers. He survived, but the operation, because of the way the police works, it was Western Region's operation, but they had come across into Northern Region's territory. So it was my geographical area. And I said, oh, that's terrible. And he says, yeah, but the other thing is it's in your area. You'll be running it. So I set the strike force up and I would say that that was one of the most rewarding parts of my career. I had over 400 officers during that four and a half months from every area of the police except uh, water police and the prosecutions, which weren't involved until we, we caught him. And just running that operation in a place which is called Now and Dock, which had one police officer, a corner store that the police bought everything out of that store in the first two days and they closed and never opened again. The logistics, the food, the welfare of my troops, the setting up of a mini city in Now and Dock, and then we're moving into Gloucester later on in the operation. Challenged a whole lot of things. So there was the operations of sending out the, the officers into the bush there was a huge wet season. There were raging rivers that were coming down that they, they weren't there in the morning. And when they were coming back, they, you know, I've got pictures of police holding rifles and police dogs above their heads to get across these rivers, snakes, all sorts of things. So sending them out to that, but also making sure they had somewhere to stay, warm beds, food, and all that sort of stuff for four and a half months was was a huge operation. I had a very good command team that allowed me to do that. So it was a great experience. There was a couple of memorable moments. The first one was after our officer was shot and our commissioner, Andrew Scipioni, stood up and addressed the media and said, we will be there until we catch him. I remember that. Yeah, and I'm thinking, right, we've tried to catch him for eight years and now I'm the one that's, uh, you know, leading the strike force. So that that was a memorable moment. And throughout that four and a half months, there were there were times when I had to think about pulling back and how could we do that and how could we leave him in the community knowing that, you know, he was such a a dangerous man. And then I got the phone call. We'd had a couple of false starts. We'd had a number of sightings through that four and a half months and near misses. 
and uh, got the phone call quite early in the morning. It must have been about one thirty, two o'clock. And they said, we've caught him. And I said, can you just repeat that, please? <laughs> and they said, we've caught him. So I thought, great, I'm going up to Gloucester and I want to pat those police on the back and congratulate them. And the commissioner says, and you know what it's like to be in the media, the commissioner says, no, you've got to come down to Sydney. We've got to tell the state that we've caught him. So someone drove me down. And, you know, it was a very proud moment to stand next to my commissioner and, and tell the community that they were safe and he was behind bars. Then I was lucky enough to be put on a police helicopter and flown up to Gloucester that afternoon to thank the police. And that was really important to me because um, they had done such a great job. When it comes to dealing with the media, do you feel like you're in a comfortable place? What do you like about them and what don't you like? And can you give us any positives at all? Yeah, no, no. Look, I have their role. I read the paper every day. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the news. So, you know, I understand our obligations of being able to tell the community what we can in relation to the events that occur, and particularly from an emergency service background. The media is our strong partner to get our messages out to make sure the community is safe. So that's a very positive part of, of the media. And no time since I've been in the police or particularly in SES, has the media let us down in being able to get those messages out. It was interesting if I use the Naden search and arrest as an example. Now and Dock is very small and uh, we took over the community hall as our main headquarters and across the road there was a public tennis court, community tennis courts with a small shed and that was the media headquarters right across the road. And um, they wanted to get vision and, and talk to the police and things. So it was quite a, an exercise to be able to, I won't say manage the media, but work with the media that they didn't interrupt my place. It was difficult. The important thing of that strike force was I actually didn't want Malcolm Naden to know what we were doing. Mm. That was a very big balance of giving the community that reassurance that we were out there searching for him and where we were and what we were doing knowing that he could be sitting in a house listening to the radio or watching a television or hooking onto a computer. So that was frustrating for the journalists from time to time because we were very much proactive at the start, out there in the field, lots of visions of police walking through the bush, helicopters, etc. But then after that, we went into some covert practices of trying to identify houses that we could put surveillance devices into. It's common knowledge now, but we didn't want it then. So the media were getting frustrated that I wasn't giving them information, but I couldn't give them information because I knew that he might pick up that paper or, or watch that TV. So that was a challenge. There was a lovely girl that I think she was from Dubbo somewhere out there and she'd ring every, every now and again and say, have you got any news for us? Is there anything affecting our local area? And, and she was, you know, there was some really nice friendships, I suppose, made during that period. Over time, you do find the ones you can trust, don't you? You do. You do find the ones that respect the entirety of the job and all the issues you're balancing at any one time. That's true. And, and Sandra, my view is I trust them all until they show me otherwise, <laughs> you know, and then you remember that. So mutual respect for each other's roles. When you look back at your career in policing, do you think it's an even playing field for women? Uh, I think there's a long way to go for a lot of organisations, policing included. But if I reflect on when I started as a 19-year-old from Wagga, suffering a fair bit of amount of discrimination in those days, it is a great place to work. There's lots of opportunities for, for women in the organisation. They are treated equally, whether it be for promotions, transfers, opportunities. The organisation I left was very, very different than the organisation I joined. Besides some 
you know, sexual harassment, things like that in the early days. And I was a 19-year-old girl from the country like many years ago, so I was quite naive. But there were things like when I was interviewed, I was asked, was I ever going to get married? Obviously, that was a barrier because I said no, even though I was married 12 months after I joined and met my husband very quickly in the, in the organisation. So that was a, a nice thing. I had to apply to the commissioner when I got married to change my name. We had the first married female join the police force, was in my class, and she had to take them to the anti-discrimination board to get in. What year was that roughly? That was 1980. Oh, God. So it wasn't that long ago. It's not that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. I remembered I joined the... I applied to go into the prosecutor. So I was a prosecutor for about 14 years in the courts and I was made to do six months probation, but the two males that joined on the same day went straight into the training courses. Did you arc up at the time? In those days, I just sort of accepted it and just made sure that I pushed forward and didn't give up. I had a lot of support from male colleagues who didn't agree with the situation either. So I'm not saying that the whole organisation was against us because the males were in the decision-making positions and if they didn't support women, then nothing was going to change. I was one of the first females to drive the F100 truck in Darlinghurst. That was one of my first stations and they had to have a half an hour meeting about it because they'd never had a female drive the truck. So when they came out, they said, right, you can drive the truck. But you can't arrest anybody, which was <laughs> ludicrous. But anyway. You can look back and laugh now, can't you? But it's ridiculous. Oh, it's, it's a bit tragic. And I remember when, and not only in the police, I remember when my husband and I were married and we were applying for a, um, a mortgage and we wanted to buy a house and we'd been, you know, with a certain bank for many years. I didn't get classed as someone who could repay that. We were only based on his salary because I was a female. And yet we were both in the police, both serving members, both had, you know, strong employment ties. But because I was a female, I didn't count. So lots of indications like that. We, when I joined, we had skirts. That was a classic. So you're climbing up in the truck in your skirt. So we had to fight to get trousers. <laughs> you had to fight to get trousers to be allowed to wear them. Yeah, had to fight. And they issued me with a handbag. In fact, it was my first leather handbag I ever owned. (laughs) And that was somewhere that I could keep my baton in because I had nowhere on my skirt to put it. So (laughs) there were a lot of challenges that weren't, uh, you know, like you say, Sandra, we we can laugh at it now. But, um, you know, to think that if we did that now, uh, we'd be in big trouble. So many young women have no idea (laughs) that it just wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't that long ago. And as I said, that we had the first married woman. I was the first one to do part-time maternity leave. And that's why today we have so few women in senior positions in police, because you have to come through the uh, probationary constable. But if you wanted to get married before I joined, you had to leave. Then about the time I joined, there was no maternity leave. And that had just come in in 78, I think. So women had to make a, you know terrible choices about their career and their family. But look, as an elder stateswoman in the game, not just policing, but in your role now, I'd imagine you'd be called upon to mentor a lot of younger women. What's your key message when you talk to them? Perseverance and resilience, I suppose, is an important message. Understanding of your own life's challenges. So are you able to do that job? Do you want to balance things? Have you got support at home? You know, they're personal choices. And I try and make sure that the women understand that it's their choice. They're in control. And I think for mental health, again, knowing that you're in control of your life is a really important strength. And it's up to the individual to understand that. Come forward if there are things that um, challenge you in relation to being able to do things, call things out. 
be strong or seek assistance are really the key messages that I try and give when I talk to the women in the organisations. And, I, you know, I'm just thrilled when I, particularly in policing over the last few years, where I've heard from women where they've said they've had absolutely no indication of any harassment or discrimination. And I think that's the reward for me that you think, well, this is a good place to work. This is great. I feel very privileged to have a mentor of the ilk of Dame Quentin Bryce. And she once said to me, Sandra, dear, you can have it all, not just at once. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's a really important message. And, you know, if I look back over my career, I wanted to have some children. So I stepped back into a a role where I could manage the demands. I wanted to pick the children, even though they're at after school care, I wanted to be the one that picked them up. I wanted to be at certain days at school for them. And I made the choices of just stepping back and and having a job, not so much a career. And then, you know, as they got older, stepped into that career path again. And and as I said, my husband and I balanced different roles at different times. I look back now and I think, well, I actually have had it all. And as exactly as uh, Quentin Bryce said, it wasn't all at the same time, but I've come out at the other end really enjoying both roles, both of mother, both as a career person, a wife and all the other things that you do throughout your life. So yeah, really happy that I'm in this position at this point in my career, running such a unique organisation and having that wonderful support as well. Well, Carleen York, it's been a delight to get to know you today. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your mad world to spend some time with us here at Short Black. Um, congratulations on the role. Um, I'm a year and a bit too late to say that, but <laughs> to find out that um, you were in charge of one of the most horrendous chapters in our lives in living memory, So congratulations and continue on with a marvellous career and we wish you the best of luck. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sandra. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.